following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. We've been discussing the power and intelligence of the heart. We may know from personal experience that we lack a fundamental knowledge of how to improve our relationships, specifically in terms of the professional or marital, familial, social spheres. This is evident by the profound suffering we may face when we are faced with challenges, when circumstances provoke perhaps the worst in us. We may find from a moment of real frustration and anger qualities in ourselves that are truly detrimental. And rather than ignore our fundamental reactions to problems, or merely to affirm in the mind a positive goal and orientation, there is another way to approach the conflicts that we consistently experience daily. That is the path of comprehension. Comprehension or understanding is a quality of the consciousness. Really, the consciousness has the capacity to perceive and to understand. Everything else is merely a filter. We know from many religions, such as Buddhism especially, that we have layers to the psyche. There are many elements within our mind, within our heart, within our impulses, our desires, as well as the senses themselves sight, hearing, touch, etc. These conditions of mind all contribute to the way we see life and experience it. And as you go deeper into the fundamental reality of a person, you arrive at the consciousness, what we call the essence in these studies. The essence is the ability to perceive and to intuit 
the reality of a given thing. Whether it be a circumstance, a argument, a fault of our own character. It is the ability to look unwaveringly and to really ascertain what is going on. It is this fundamental act of looking, of sustained attention, and of deep insight that is the fundamental practice of the Gnostics. These two skills are really what any meditator masters. It is the ability to comprehend. It is real wisdom. And this fundamental wisdom, this clear seeing into the crises of existence, is, in Christian terms, the ability of Christ. Christos, from the Greek, referring to anointed one. It is the ability, the consciousness, that is really able to hit home within the heart and to distinguish the real from the false. It is the ability to see reality. Christos also referring to the Greek god of fire. And we know that from the fire of passion and temptation, of intense suffering, emotional crises, we can arrive at the light of understanding. So you may be following this series of lectures. We've been talking about really the fundamental nature of Christianity and Buddhism, because these traditions can teach us very deeply about the nature of ourselves. And more importantly, some practical methods that can aid us in developing and awakening the intelligence of the heart. This state of being, this profound serenity, is truly selfless. It is selfless in the sense of what we currently and commonly experience as I, what I am, what I want, what I crave, what I don't want, what I hate. It is still a perception, but it is not conditioned by elements like anger or pride or fear. We will talk about the nature of this selfless, enlightened, insightful, and intuitive perception. This term intuition often is thrown around in New Age circles as really a kind of a coinage for mystical attitudes, but really in the fundamental depth of this term. It means to understand what is reality, both externally from ourselves and within. We'll elaborate on what this enlightened perception is. Obviously, I gave the Greek, uh, the Greek term, Christos, embodied and perfected in the Master Jesus, who is one of many masters who has developed that light, that intelligence that profound wisdom. This type of perception is empowered through conscious love, the ability to know how to love. So we talked previously on the, the nature of love and wisdom, that it must be balanced. You cannot love effectively a sick person 
if you don't know, do not know how to heal them. Neither can we help someone if we do not sympathize, if we don't have compassion. Conscious love is the embodiment of wisdom. You can love someone, an addict, a criminal, a deviant. But if we do not know how to interact with them, we can create and endure harm. It's important to know how to love. We do so by intelligently managing our psychological states and following intuition. That hunch that says, I know what to act and say and do in this situation. It's not an intellectual process. It's one of the heart. And this is what leads to really deep insights and wisdom that can help us transform suffering. As you can see from this explanation, oftentimes in the West, we try to solve problems with the intellect all the time. We even use the intellect to try to solve emotional problems. It's like trying to use a telescope to look at a microbe or a microscope to look at the stars. It's the wrong apparatus. We want to use the right tool in life. And sometimes we need the intellect, but it has to be tempered. It has to be balanced. The heart has much more profound wisdom for knowing how to navigate social dimensions. And so this is what we want to really awaken and develop, especially since being in North America, we have a intellectual lifestyle, typically, you know, at least the Western dispensation is very cerebral. We're also going to continue an analysis and explanation of what Samanvir wrote in the following lines. I also want to emphasize that this verse we explained last time to some degree, but I hope to convey that the knowledge contained in his writings, especially, are very deep and that the tendency is to gloss things over. We don't really look profoundly or meditate on what these expressions really mean. So I hope that we can explore this topic more and also discover and appreciate the eclecticism and dyna uh, dynamic nature of his work, especially in relation to the heart. Love and wisdom are the secret path of the heart. The wisdom of the seal of the heart is for children. In other words, for those who do not commit adultery with Jezebel, who call herself a prophetess. We explain love and wisdom, the two pillars of being, which uphold the canopy of the initiates, the celestial artifice and arc of divinity. The wisdom of the seal of the heart is for children, meaning for those who are looking to strip away everything extemporaneous to the essence, to get at the heart, the kindness and love of a primordial innocence, which is within the depths of the psyche, which has to be explored. This means that we do not commit adultery with Jezebel, who is a prophetess in the New Testament, the book of Revelations, a representation of the modern intellect that thinks it knows. And due to its luciferic self-sufficiency and pride, 
does not understand the divine or oneself, although it thinks that it can foresee the future reality. In exploring the heart, we can look at a teaching given within Tibetan Buddhism. It's known as Mahamudra. This means the great seal. And Mahamudra is a very profound analysis about the nature of self, our psychology, and our actions. By understanding our own internal states and how they function within our three spheres of thought, feeling, and action, we can arrive at a deep wisdom and serenity for confronting suffering. Now, while I provide some Tibetan Buddhist terms and explanations, we can say that this knowledge is really at the essence of Christianity very deeply. It is just given in different terms. We find it especially in the first seal, Anitya. All conditioned existence is impermanent. Nothing lasts forever except divinity. All that we've seen perceive in the world, like the grass in the field and the lilies that neither toil nor spin, all of this in its essence, will bloom but for a moment and will vanish in accordance with the law, the law of causality, the law of action. And in this way, we can look at our own perceptions of mind. Really, our conditions of mind. We fail to ever explore our own psyche unless we're actively looking moment by moment, paying attention, watching with internal senses, looking at the states that arrive, sustain, and pass. These are qualities, thoughts, associative memories, desires, impulses, attachments, cravings, passions, fears, anxieties. These states, if we're looking and watching, are like a wheel. They turn, they spin, they arrive, emerge, and pass in accordance with the conditions of existence, the states of life, the challenges and hardships of being. More importantly, these conditions of mind our own anger and fear and pride, our defects, do not have intrinsic, existing, permanent reality. If you use Christian terms, these impermanent states of mind are shaitan, the Hebrew term for adversary, Satan, vices, errors. They are errors or sins or defects because they miss the mark. It's an archery term. To sin is to not hit the target. And when we are clouded by passions and grievances, intense sorrow and morbidity, we do not see 
reality. We do not see divinity because we are caught. We are attached. We are sucked in to the senses, to the mind. Conditioned existence is impermanent because it is not fundamentally real. What is real is divinity, our Christic nature, the ability of divine perception without any filter. It is what can cut through this heavy state of mind, which afflict the senses and our heart. We also see in the second seal of Mahamudra that all deluded existences are suffering, meaning any perception of mind in which we intensify psychological, emotional pain is deluded. We don't see that our attachments or anger is profound suffering, although it is pleasurable perhaps in the moment to fulfill it. And yet we all know the sour aftertaste of its consequences. When we act with deluded states of being, we suffer. And more importantly, we make other people suffer. One of the profound truths of Mahamudra, the great seal, this uh, Tibetan Buddhist teaching, is that the perception that all things are empty and lacking self-identity, which is at the core of Buddhism especially, anatman, no self, is precisely the meekness and serenity of Christ. It is humility. It is humbleness. Only from a state of humility can we actually be willing to look and not to assume like the Pharisee that we know. If we do not learn what selflessness is, humility, humbleness, why would we look? Why would we want to change? Why would we strive for something better? Because we are self-sufficient. Really, all the states of self, its fluctuations and complexities, its interconnectedness, its constant exchanges, as we watch internally, within, moment by moment, really, these things are empty in the sense, not that they're not real or don't have existence, but they depend on other things. They depend on the impressions of life, circumstances, challenges, situations. The defect of pride depends upon praise. The defect of anger may depend upon aversion, the avoidance of some problem, some situation. And yet when the situation is over or the anger is fed or we watch it, see how it blooms, how it emerges, looking at it, it becomes possible to see really from a state of watchfulness that there is no eternality to this constantly changing flux of impulses, passions, and desires. 
these errors, we call them egos, selves, defects. These things in themselves are not real. And yet, due to our ignorance, we subscribe to them because it is pleasurable. However, not one jot nor one tittle will pass from the law except all be fulfilled. Because karma, cause and, act, cause and effect, causality is definite. It is certain. What we are psychologically determines the trajectory of our life, who we are and who we become. By looking at ourselves and understanding the impermanence of our own psyche, we can learn to discover that which is real. What is it that can watch, that can observe, that can contemplate, that can sustain attention without forgetting, which can clearly see the contents, the emergence, maybe even the expression or the passing of passion. It is the consciousness. It is the soul. But that soul needs to be developed. It is very weak. It is like a child. It is innocent, but inexperienced. Only by actively working with this uh, childlike Edenic state, by evoking it again and again, do we learn, like in this image, to look at the wheel, that constant cycling and churning of circumstance and identity, moment by moment and learn to cut through it all. That knowledge, real knowledge, is liberation and cessation. It means that when we understand the whole machinery of our own reactions in life, we can cut through and experience real serenity, real peace. This is nirvana. Now, we mention this because in the context of this lecture, we want to perfect the heart. We want to perfect the consciousness. And when the soul is perfected, it is sealed. If you study the book of Revelation, we know that only the Lamb of God, the Christ, the divine, the Christic force can open the book of the human being and awaken the seal that blinds us. That Direct perception and wisdom ends in peace. It is real cessation. But we have to understand, like this image of the Baba Chakra, the wheel of being and becoming, our psychological states that lead us again and again to our current state. In this way, we want to awaken the heart because it is the heart, the consciousness, superior, prayerful divine states that can really open us up to verifying the reality of divinity, what divinity is. So we've talked a lot about the term bodhisattva, which is a person or individual, an initiate, who has incarnated bodhi, the Sanskrit term for wisdom. And in Hebrew, wisdom is hokmah, and Kabbalah referring to Christ. 
the power of perception, the wisdom, the power of vision. And sattva is the essence, the soul that has learned to develop itself to the point that it can receive divinity. And that bodhisattva is an amalgamation, you know, chemical transformation of a normal person into a demigod, half human and really half divine, half terrestrial, half celestial. A bodhisattva works to develop and perfect the heart because in reality, the heart must know how to manage the other centers of our being. We know from studies and astral projection and dream yoga, we've given a course previously on how to awaken within dreams. Practices and techniques to awaken the heart and learn to experience realities that are beyond the body, not merely physical, but oniric. The world of dreams is related to the emotions, to feeling. We call it the astral dimension. And is a level of materiality and being, which is real. Obviously, when we dream, we interact with either the elements of our own mind or certain areas and circumstances, maybe repetitions of our day. But also there are places that we travel to again and again unconsciously. And in a sense, that state opens up to us with greater clarity and depth, more vividness and intensity when we learn to save emotional energy because the astral vehicle, we call it astral body or the dream body we use when we experience that dimension is powered by fuel, emotional energy. People wonder why they don't experience visions. They approach these studies and they hear about many beautiful teachings like speaking with divinity, the innermost, with masters of great attainment. However, they don't realize that those experiences are not possible when the heart is calloused, when it is rusted with age. The heart is like a mirror. And when we polish it, with daily practice, it learns to reflect realities that are far beyond our intellectual concepts, our fears or our prejudices. We learn to see the realities that exist in that dimension or that level of being. It's in those states that we can learn to speak directly with divinity, our own being. However, the mind and the heart often is very depleted. If we waste emotional energy throughout the day, if we are imbalanced in the heart, if we are excessive with our feelings and passions, with our sentimentalism, anger, frustration, fear, pride, with what energy are we going to awaken the consciousness within dreams? It's not possible. So in the heart doctrine of these teachings, the study of 
the relationship of the soul with divinity in the heart. We pay a lot of attention to perfecting and balancing the mind, balancing the heart in unison. Because when that mirror is fully polished, it becomes what is known as a Christ mind. And what is a Christ mind? It is an intuitive, perceptive, understanding mind. Not a mind riddled with associative thought, paranoia, fear, thoughts, associative thinking, memories, daydreams, fantasies. Constant churning that has no control. It is hyperactive. Instead, a Christ mind is perfectly serene. It can understand, receive knowledge and insight without having to deliberate or choose. It knows. And likewise, the heart, when it is clarifying the intellect, when it is strong, becomes the city of divinity, the city of God. A state in which a dynamic range of emotion is possible. Not merely anger and passion, but even the strong tempest like Beethoven in his symphonies, or the profound still and calm of Chopin's nocturnes. These forms of music depict the range and power and gentleness and severity of the soul and of divinity in the heart. The heart is possible. It is possible for the heart to reflect these types of states of being, but it's important to learn to cultivate it. This is how we learn to seal our heart. You have to learn to seal the emotional center, not waste its energies, not expel them through negative emotion, but to conserve them. It is with this energy by which we can seal our work. And by having that force available to us, we can polish and purify. Here is what someone Vior stated in the Zodiacal Course about this. The disciple must receive instructions from his own innermost. And the duty of the innermost is to instruct his bodhisattva. That is to say, his soul who is anxious for light. The doctrine of Shin Sen teaches that the human mind is like a mirror, which attracts and reflects each dust atom and has to be dusted each day until becoming a Christ mind. Shen Sen was the sixth patriarch of northern China who taught the esoteric doctrine of Bodhidharma. In Sanskrit, the internal chamber of the heart is called Brahmapura, the city of the Supreme God. The disciple should become a master of samadhi, ecstasy, comprehension. Buddha Dharma is the religion of wisdom in China. The doctrine of the heart is called the seal of the truth or the true seal. So how do we practically develop the heart? Obviously, we want to balance all aspects of our psychology. So while we've been paying close attention to how to perfect and polish the emotional center, it's also important to understand our sexuality. So if you've studied anything from Salman Vior for some period of time, you know that he pays very great detail and attention to the sexual problem, the sexual energy. This is very important because the quality of our sexual life will determine the quality of our mind. 
there's a deep connection between the use of sexual energy and the nature of our intellect and especially the nature of our heart. We included here an image of Padma Sambhava with his consort Yeshet Sogyal in the act of divine marital union. They emphasize in the highest forms of Buddhism that tantrism or the perfect matrimony, when a couple can harness the most powerful forces they carry within their bodies, hearts, and minds, learn to conserve that force, it is the power of liberation. It is the power of real awakening. Now, in relation to the quality of our life and the state of our sexual energy, it's very evident by looking at the news and perhaps knowing or having experienced for oneself the traumas related to sex, that this force has tremendous power. It is the power of life. And just as it can give forth fruition to a child, when it is misused, it becomes terribly destructive. There is two potentials for this force, to create or to destroy. And depending on what we do with it, determines the quality of our heart. It's evident in cases of trauma of a sexual type that there is great emotional pain. The heart is afflicted. Many problems of the heart are deeply related to the quality of our sexuality. In a sense, the energy that can polish the heart and give it life, give it strength, is precisely this force. So the Christians have called it the Holy Spirit. The Hindus have called it Kundalini. The Tibetans, Dumo Yoga. Or Tara. In Judaism, that force is known as Miriam the force of the Divine Mother Mary. This force is also in Kabbalah, Shekinah. The power that can take the exiled initiate from the promised land and return him or her to paradise. This path was known as Dzogchen, or Tantra. It is not mere sex. It is the upright use of that energy for the spirit. Not mixed with lust, with desire, with passion. The indulgence of sensation. The point of Tantra is not to experience pleasure, to indulge in it, to be saturated and to seek it again and again with addiction. The path of Tantra is the path of renunciation. It means to give up the animal, as evidenced by a famous teaching by Padmasambhava, where he said that lustful people do not enter the path of libera liberation. It's strange, right? I mean, you see this image here of Padmasambhava, and yet he says, lustful people do not go to heaven. So how is it that one could be in the sexual act 
without lust. It's because lust is not the same as love. Lust is desire. It is wanting and craving what I want, what I desire, what I need. It does not care for the other person. It merely uses the other as an object. And it is this animality that must be sacrificed. Obviously, it's not easy in the beginning, but it can be done. If the relationship is based on love, not mere convenience, saying, because this person is Gnostic, therefore we can practice together. It must be based in love. This is the real alchemical marriage in which the normal sexual act is transformed into a sacrament. But that is impossible if there is no real depth of love and sympathy and harmony within the soul. This alchemical wedding is the transformation of water into wine, the first miracle of Jesus. And this is possible because of love, the path of perfecting the heart. This path is very direct, but it requires a lot of will. And the act of the perfect matrimony is a very profound thing. It is what can help lead one radically to the end of suffering. But one must be, given, be willing to give up passion. Obviously, desire and lust. Dzogchen is the secret, unexcelled cycle of the supreme vehicle of Tantra, the true essence of the definitive meaning, the short path for attaining Buddhahood in one life. This is paralleled in the Quran. The path of alchemy, Allah, chemia, the chemistry of God, the chemistry of creation to fuse with divinity, the straight path. In the name of Allah, the entirely merciful, the especially merciful, all praises to, due to Allah, Lord of the worlds, the entirely merciful, the especially merciful, sovereign of the day of recompense. It is to you we worship and you we, we ask for help. Guide us to the straight path, the path of those upon whom you have bestowed favor, not of those who have evoked your anger or of those who are astray. So this path is really the straight and narrow gate mentioned by Jesus where one receives divine favor and not has, has not evoked the anger of divinity because feeding desire and passion, deviance. So the sexual energy, when it's harnessed and controlled by the heart, is what can elevate the psyche. So that power which can give rise to a child is given towards the second birth mentioned by Jesus. So the cross is a symbol relating to alchemy. It is a symbol of marriage. The vertical beam is the phallus. The horizontal beam is the uterus. And the rose of benediction is the flowering and virtue of the soul. This is the cross that every initiate must carry on their shoulder when denying themselves and following divinity. 
that self-denial is to give up the egotism of our past and our attachments. The heart is the only thing possible that can raise the creative energy with fidelity, with true accuracy, with profound depth. There are people who approach sexuality or alchemy relationships to satisfy passion. And unfortunately, this is very mistaken because the fires of sex are not controlled by the heart of adultery. A heart that is whimsical, that is not uh, constrained, that is not integrated. The heart is what determines the trajectory of our creative energies. Because a lot of what we feel, our passions and desires, are fueled by the creative energies. But obviously in a modified sense. Because the sexual force is what permeates our entire psyche. It circulates throughout our nervous systems, our internal vehicles, our mind, our spine. But if that energy is not controlled by a heart of equanimity and understanding, it is not tempered. It is not directed. There are some excerpts from the Song of Songs of Solomon where we find some beautiful teachings related to the nature of sexuality and the heart. These verses really emphasize that it is the heart that must determine the quality of sex. And this is the fundamental issue. The heart must consciously love. And that means to deny oneself. Now, we included some Hebrew here because the Hebrew is very profound. And there are some words that I'd like to relate to you in relation to this scripture that can emphasize for us how the heart elevates the cross, the powers of creation. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Basically, you find the words Shoshona in Hebrew referring to lily. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. The lily is a very beautiful symbol. The lotus. Where does a lily or lotus grow? A flower. It grows from the mud. It grows from putrescence, filth, the dirt. That is the state of our mind. Currently, really, I mean, to look at ourselves, we can see from experience that we have a lot of lust, a lot of anger, a lot of pride, a lot of errors. If we're looking, if we're not assuming, but gathering data like a director watching an actor for a film, investigating. And this can be very disconcerting. However, it is from the mud of passion in which the flower of great divine beauty rises. And even the rose, the Shoshana, which also can be uh, translated as lily, really is the, the virtue and flowering of the soul.
But that impurity must be conquered. But from it is what we learn to extract, is how we learn to extract real wisdom. This is something that you can only learn and verify for, from experience by looking within and examining your states. By examining the passions of the heart and mind and body, the impulses of sex, and understanding that they are impermanent and contingent upon fleeting impressions and illusions, we learn to really develop true love. Love of divinity. Love that is as cruel as the grave. As cruel and terrifying as our divine mother. This love is as strong as death. Because it is beyond death. But that love can only be born when we die internally, psychologically, to the filth, to the mud. It is from this core state of being in which the soul looks at the illusions of self and fleeting temptations, impermanent passions, instincts, drives, in which a real fire can be born in the soul. That fire is the real love for divinity, for our divine mother, Shekinah, who is the feminine aspect of divinity, part of us that is truly sacred, symbolized by the sacred feminine in every religion, whether it's the Virgin Mary or whatnot. She is the fire of love. And she is unstoppable. But we must learn to yield to her impulse. And that only is accomplished by understanding the impermanence of our own fleeting desires. So here's what the Song of Solomon states. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire which have a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly, it would, it would utterly be despised. Who is speaking here? Really is divinity, the divine mother. She says to the soul, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. May your actions reflect the love of God. And that love cannot mix with our own demonic mind. If we are filled with passion and we do not yearn for more, then not really we are swept away by the flood. And eventually the Tower of Babel will fall. This love is strong as death, and divinity's jealousy for the soul is as cruel as the grave. Because if divinity was not jealous for the soul and want us to return, we would be lost. And these coals, symbolically, and even in dreams, coals can represent the sexual energy because in us, it is black. 
It is filthy. But if you heat it, you extract the fire. But only if you learn to temper the fire, the vehement flame, the fire of sex, which can inflame the spirit if it is tempered by love. Many waters of lust cannot quench love if it is there and if we are willing to change. Most people, though, really despise this knowledge that we're relating from the writings of Salman Vior, especially his teachings on chastity. He explains the basis of religion is chastity, not the avoidance of sex, not its indulgence but it's comprehension. It's upright use within a marriage between husband and wife. And when men and women and initiates give all their substance, meaning they're saving their creative energies for the house of love, the internal house of God, to create the spirit inside, people despise it because it does not fit within a prescribed paradigm or the propaganda that is flooding Really, social media, the internet, humanity, schools, families. There is another path related to sexuality that can truly renovate and regenerate the heart, can really give it balance and stability, but people have to be willing to want it and to try it and to be patient because it is not easy. So the heart is what governs the fires of sex. And so the heart is related to Christ. You can think of your head, your heart, and your sexuality as three brains. We call them brains in esotericism because they relate to mechanical, physiological, psychological, and spiritual functions related to the consciousness. We know with our brain, physically, our intellect, we think. Our heart, we feel. It's also a brain because it is intelligent. But also we have a sexual center relating to our spine and genitalia, our coccyx, and um, the base of our spine relating to a brain of action. The fires of sex, the fires of the heart, and the terribly divine rays of an illuminated mind must all be in balance. But the fire that really governs all three is the heart because that is the seed of the soul. What we want is to have a heart that is very sensitive and strong, but it cannot be sensitive if we dull it with the stones of hate. The mirror of the heart shines and can reflect really superior states of being, which really are what help to navigate the energies of sex, but also the state of the mind. Because the heart really is the intermediary, the reconciliator between intellect and sex. We need the heart very deeply and to have it very healthy in a psychological and spiritual sense, even physically too, but more importantly, psychologically. The fires of the spinal medulla are Jehovistic. The fires of the heart are Christic. The fires of the head between the eyebrows spark the terribly divine rays of the Father. 
what someone is explaining here is that by working with the fires of all our centers, because really the energies of our three brains are like fire. They are a type of spiritual currency by which we spend or save contingent upon our actions. If we save that force or those energies, we have enough force by which to raise the sexual force up the spine, like the form of a serpent, to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves within the medullary canal known as Shushumna. This is the spinal medulla, the spinal channel, which the fires of divinity rise according to the merits of the heart. Shushumna also can sound like Shoshana because the rows of, you could say, the chakras or energy centers open and bloom as a result of raising this force. But this power is not mechanical. It does not conform to our, you know, prejudices, our assumptions, our habits, our desires. It only rises when we fight in our heart, not against anyone else, but against our own errors. Those merits are the currency by which we raise the fire of sex. It is the fires of temptation that are tempered into the armaments of Vulcan, the god Hephaestus, the weapons of the solar heroes who fight courageously in the path of love. This fire is only saved and perfected when we earn it. And the heart is what determines what we earn and what we do not earn. You have to look at your own emotional reactions and states in certain circumstances of life because a moment of anger can exhaust everything. A moment of lust, even if one does not indulge in orgasm, can take the energy and send it into the demon within us. It's not enough merely to save sexual energy, conserve it. We have to know how to use it. Saving it is the first step. It's easy. Knowing how to direct it with the soul is an entirely different matter. It is the path of the heart against heart in which we have to decide in ordeals how will we act. Will we be integral, honest with ourselves? Or will we continue to delude our our current circumstances by believing we are something we are not because we don't want to look. This is why Samoan Vior stated, the ascent of the sacred serpent through the medullar canal, Shushubna, is controlled by the fires of the heart. The Kundalini evolves and progresses according to the merits of the heart. So how do we deny our heart? Obviously, it's lust. Maybe emotionally, through relationships, the desire to manipulate, to coerce, to earn praise, to attract, to captivate. We deny our heart when we feed Jezebel. This Jezebel is a type of defect, very fat in most of us. 
which is very self-indulgent and self-sufficient. A state of mind that revels in envy and stealing energy. We steal energy all the time, whether it's through our attitudes and cravings for attention, praise, fame, sexual attention, relationships, going from one to the next constantly. We deny our heart when we saturate ourselves with this. So Jezebel is a really an, an ego, a very lustful state that does not repent. This lustful defect can even wear the robes of a saint. This is why Judas was an apostle and yet betrayed God. It doesn't, this has nothing to do with propositions, meaning one believes in Christ and then the next day rejects him as a statement, as a creed. We do this all the time. When approached by sexual temptations, we feel passion and lust, desire, and yet we do not want to understand it, separate, or eliminate. This state of mind really permeates most of modern culture, but also it is very fat in spiritual groups. And this is perhaps the worst form of mysticism, spiritual lust. The lust that believes it is a mystic. And this is precisely what Jezebel is. It is a type of spiritual ego, a refined ego that loves attention, loves praise, and loves sex, but does not love at all, consciously. So in the book of Revelations, you find that really this prophetess is what has seduced the children of Israel and also as a symbol saturated or tempted the initiates. Because this is something that every Gnostic student confronts in him or herself. Really, I mean, we approach mysticism and spirituality. We understand on a basic level what chastity is. And yet there is this mystical fornicator in our minds and hearts, which does not want to obey chastity. Chastity does not merely mean in our studies the avoidance of orgasm. It means purity in sex. Because you can be restraining your sexual matter and yet completely indulge like an animal in the sexual act. And this is still fornication because it is lust and passion and animal desire. It is not love. The word fornication comes from furnix, furnace, to burn. It means to have no control. Or if one is controlling it, to do it egotistically. And this is something very well known within Taoist practice, in which really is a form of negative sexuality. We don't recommend it in terms of even by withholding the sexual force, but still engaging with lust is not good. So 
this state of mind really is the source of great tribulation and pain because it is a form of adultery. It takes this it's a adultery, not merely by having multiple sexual partners, really, but it means to, you know, take the sexual energy and adulterate it from its pristine and original natural condition. It means to use it for things that don't belong to it. And really, this is the source of all our defects. This state of mind will have to be disintegrated at some point. Whether we do it willingly now or later with compounded pain, it depends on us. This is why in the book of Revelations, it states, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. What are these idols? These are our precious identities, our ideas, our conceptions of self. An idol is made of stone. And what else is an ego or a habit or a defect or a desire but a petrified element which weighs us down? To eat things sacrificed into idols is to act with desire. And the children of desire really is death. Because there are children, according to the verse we read by Salman Vior, relating to the children of Eden, the innocence of the soul, the purity of the essence. But the children of desire, our own defects, our own egos, will be killed with death. Meaning they will have to die because they are not permanent. But they trap part of us Really, they trap us in hell, a state of suffering, a state of pain. And only by extracting the light, by cutting through desire and ceasing to suffer mechanically like an animal in the field, we can learn to get light and acquire real wisdom. Divinity is the one that searches the chakras, the churches of the spine, and the reins and the hearts. What are the reins? In the same way that you control a cart, you have reins. This is your willpower. And your heart is your soul. Divinity searches the reins in the sense of the kidneys in one sense, which relates to chakras and energies related to our sexuality. But those reins are really how we master our sex. Divinity looks at our sexual energy and our heart and will give us according to our work. Examine your life. Examine your situation. What have we earned? Are we earning more pain or greater serenity and wisdom? We have to look to our actions and decide what is it that we're doing and what is it we need to do. And if we're doing well, how can we continue? 
and to be honest. This is how we cultivate the fires of the heart, to become like a child. This is the essence or soul, like a kerub, innocent, primordial, and chaste. This state is not naivety or stupidity, infantilism, a lack of intelligence. It is a state of being that is not tarnished by the accumulations of our personality, our contemporary time, place, our race, our religion, our beliefs. It is a state in which we can see divinity once we strip away that which is not essential to perception and understanding. The Bible has some very beautiful verses relating to the primordial nature of this state because it is a state of innocence in which by learning to look without assuming that we know, in which we humble ourselves, we can learn to access a higher way of being. Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A child is also a symbol of an initiate. And to have dreams of Kerubim, masters who arrive in the form of little angels, are representing the need for us to regain our pure state. But the filth must be cleansed. The psyche must be refined. Or as stated in the Gospel of Thomas, the same iterations. Jesus said, the person old in days won't hesitate to ask a little child seven days old what the place of life and that person will live. That life is spiritual. And those seven days are reminiscent of the seven days of Genesis. These seven days are initiations relating to Kabbalah. And that a child with that development spiritually can help an old person. Because all of us are very old. Not physically, maybe. But psychologically, we're very old. We have a lot of attachments from previous accumulated states, like a snowball effect from lifetime to lifetime, which have really codified into a current pattern in our existence. And it is that pattern, that chief psychological defect that kind of really permeates everything we do that we have to understand because it makes us very decrepit, elderly, not in wisdom, but in weakness. So that is why we must reverse that state. So there are really three paths mentioned in the, hidden in the Bible that relate to the full awakening of the power of the heart. They are the paths of Peter, Judas, and John. We mentioned three because they synthesize the entire path or the straight path mentioned by Jesus. These three apostles represent qualities of mind and being. They are literal figures in history, but like a drama in scripture or a play, every person has their part. And they come to teach symbols relating to our development and being, which can be interpreted by intuition with great clarity. We break them down here because they're very profound. And they synthesize what it means to walk the entire path. In the path of Peter, 
You have the path of alchemy, the path of a marriage. So by working with a partner, husband and wife, through love, one descends into the sexual act to confront lust as a hero. And Peter holds the keys of heaven. Remember that he holds the gold and silver keys. In a sense, those are symbols of man and woman. Gold is masculine, silver is feminine. And in their union, we open up the door that leads to the higher states of consciousness. John is the path of the word, the path of initiates, the path of angels. These are beings who have transcended sex. They are very perfect, but they are reaching higher levels of perfection. However, it's not possible to access the path of John, the level of a divine angel or cosmo creator, to be a being who can create entire cosmoses or heavens without having first path passed through the path of Judas. Judas is the path of death because Judas hangs himself. Judas is a representation of our own lust our own ego, our defects. There is an abyss between the paths of Peter and John. Even if we work in a marriage based on love, but we are not eliminating our own desires, we're not killing our own inner Judas, it is impossible to bridge the abyss that leads to the path of John. This is very difficult. Judas in us is a priest with a lot of respect, veneration, power, and yet loves lust more. So these three paths really form three aspects of one thing. And we study them separately, but also together to understand how to lead to the heart of divinity. Peter, the master of Mythuna, Patar, the stone of sex, dies crucified on an inverted cross with his head down towards the ground and his feet towards the heavens because our intellect must really, we have to descend really towards the creative act itself to conquer it. John, E-E-O-U-An, the word itself, rests his head on the heart of the great Kabir Jesus as if saying, love is nourished with love. No one can work in the path of John without having tread upon the path of Peter. This is very profound. There are people who think they are born again. They believe in Christ and Jesus and the personality of the Savior, but who do not work in the path of Peter. They believe that they are born again without working in sex. Even though sex is a essential problem of the second birth, to be born again. It is impossible to become an angel in the path of John without first working with the path of Peter, Patar, the stones of the genitalia, the creative force, the sexual act, the perfect matrimony. The fundamental clue of the path of Peter is the Mythuna, the perfect matrimony. In the path of John, the sexual act is absolutely forbidden. This is very important to note because it's only after having conquered sex that one can transcend it. There are many priests and 
individuals, monks, celibates, who think that by avoiding sex, they conquer it. Avoidance is not transcendence. Transcendence occurs by mastering the sexual act within a loving marriage. And in that sense, by having conquered it directly, one can renounce what they have earned. Not before. An abyss exists between the path of Peter and the path of John. It is indispensable to establish a bridge over that precipice in order to unite the two paths. It is urgent to hang, to lynch Judas on the bridge. To become an angel, we have to fully die to our own mind, our defects. By eliminating defects is how we awaken the heart to real positive emotion, to superior states. In conclusion, we emphasize, if you want to know more about the path itself and its synthesis, especially as outlined in that verse by Salman Vior about love and wisdom, Jezebel, the children of Eden, it's important to study. It would be good to study a course given by Glorian Publishing called The Path of the Bodhisattva, which summarizes and synthesizes the points we attempted to outline here in some detail. At this point, I invite you to ask questions. We have a question. So my heart is injured and scarred from past sexual trauma. How can I therefore develop the heart? Meditation. Meditation upon the Divine Mother. It's difficult to approach traumas in meditation because they're very overpowering. And they may have very deep roots within multiple events that can be very challenging and upsetting to revisit. It's been well shown within therapy that individuals who voluntarily confront their traumas, even articulate them and write about them, discuss them within a professional setting, obviously relive the, the pain and suffering of that state. It can become very intense, but at the same time, those people experience the greatest recovery and the most expedient. On an even more profound level, Sexual trauma can be healed with meditation. And we can develop our heart by understanding where we went wrong, but also understand the solution and how not to repeat the same problem again. That understanding will really develop the heart. And sometimes even just praying and meditating and invoking our divine mother can give us the strength that we need to look and to have the courage even to weep. Many deep tears. It's very healing to face that in oneself, but it is very breaking because, you know, one has to have the courage. Comprehension is what heals. When we comprehend a fault or an error, an ego or a defect, our Divine Mother can eliminate it and therefore extract the soul that is trapped there and free it. That is the cessation of suffering. That is the way. Retrospection meditation. We have a question. Can you elaborate more on how sexual trauma hurts the heart? Also, 
What can one do to correct this wrong, specifically childhood trauma? Is it always related to karma? Personally, it's been my observation of people who have very promiscuous sexual lives that their heart is all over the place. They do not have integrity. Because of adultery or having multiple sexual partners very frequently and not controlling the sexual energy precisely through those, those habits, those people are very confused emotionally. They lack insight into basic things. I mean, it's very profound when you think about it and simple. If you conserve the creative force within a monogamous relationship, a heterosexual marriage, you not only have a surplus of creative force by which to regenerate the psyche, but also even in that loving relationship, one finds balance, is equilibrated. Sexual trauma hurts the heart because I mean, that energy, if it's expelled or misused, diverted to multiple, you know, passions and desires, creates a lot of confusion. In a sense, all of us are traumatized uh, psychologically. We have deep-rooted complexes and problems psychologically because we took the sexual force and used it to create those problems. But because we didn't know how to use the energy rightly. But we can learn, we can change. No matter the degree of suffering or the degree of density of that problem. And again, as I explained in the last question, the way that we correct this problem is through meditation. Meditating on what happened, what we did, what we saw, and not adding to or detracting from the experience. Merely evoking the imagery in our mind, in our imagination, and looking at the situation and our reactions in being willing to look at it again and again, if we need to, to really understand it, what happened and why. Not all childhood trauma is also related to karma. I mean, obviously, you know, there may be situations and most likely due to recurrence, the things that we receive in childhood were what we gave in the past. That's something that only you can discover in meditation. So we have a question. Is it possible to go along the path of Peter and master sexual energy alone, or does it need to be between two people? You know, good question. Single practitioners can advance very profoundly in the work. They can eliminate a lot of defects, but they cannot master themselves unless they're married. This is primarily because, like the question or like the statement about celibacy, it's impossible to conquer something that you avoid. Really, I mean, sexuality is truly mastered between a couple, between husband and wife. Only in that way can one transcend the act when that energy is perfected. The path of Peter is precisely a marriage, but individual practitioners can learn to train themselves for many years until they get married finally by being prepared. Personally, I've been practicing pranayama and many exercises for a long time until I found my spouse and began practicing in a marriage. And in that way, that year of probation of being a single helped prepare me to learn how to evoke and use the sexual force in a marriage. It'll train you. So it's if you're single, 
good. If you're married already, good too. I mean, that's managed by your divinity. And wherever you're at is where you begin. So karma. But real mastery occurs in a marriage. So there are levels, levels upon levels of work. We have a question. You spoke about fornication not being just about orgasm. Can you clarify what acts are sexual acts? What about other forms of intimacy, such as oral sex, kissing, touching, cuddling, etc.? Very good question. I know sometimes when we read the works of Salman Vior, that some of these points can be missed. You know, it may not be obvious what fornication or sexual acts really mean. You know, it's it's on a basic level we know about orgasm. I mean, it's very simple. In a way, uh, Salman Vior is kind of just giving a baseline, but really sexual acts, you know, what actions are sexual depends upon our sexual and instinctive centers, especially even our emotions and thoughts. We have to be looking at really, you know, psychologically our own mind, you know, in terms of kissing or cuddling or showing intimacy, you know, if you're really observant with your partner, your spouse, as husband or wife, you may find that a simple act of kissing could be very lustful, or it could be very chaste. It depends on what is acting through the five centers of the human machine. Now, to be very explicit, uh, oral sex is is very negative, and is very is fornication. You know, we, we do not condone that at all in the work of alchemy, primarily because to give a biological as well as an energetic reason. In both man and woman, there are polarities. So in the woman, their sexual organs are the negative charge. And in the man, their sexual organs are the masculine charge. Think of it like a car battery. Now, the mouth of women is a positive charge because the verb and sex are connected. This explains why our voices change when we hit puberty because the sexual energy is acting through dot and Kabbalah, which is the sphere relating to the throat, the mouth, the word, and how we pronounce mantras in the sexual act in alchemy helps to transmute sexual energy when it's performed with purity of mind. Now with men, the sexual charge of their lips is feminine. Now the sexual organs of man and woman are meant to connect that's what they're designed for. And the sexual organs of the man, the positive charge of man, can reconciliate with the negative charge of the woman. But when there's oral sex, literally, you have a discharge. The same current, positive to positive and negative to negative, is like producing a, um, really, a, a shock in the same way that you wouldn't do that to a car battery without getting electrocuted, you don't do that sexually without getting discharged. The energies will fry you mentally and emotionally, which is why we condemn oral sex. It's not good. So it really, it, it's black magic, basically, because you're taking the energies and feeding lust. There's nothing constructive there. So on an energetic level, that's the basis. Um, cuddling and touching, obviously, caressing, you know, those are intimate acts, which help to, you know, lead to arousal and, you know, couples all have their temperaments and rhythms and, you know, in a sense, 
the vulgar term for it is foreplay, but it's basically, you know, arousing your spouse, you know, caressing with love. It can be, it can be done with lust or it can be done with love, with chastity. You have to examine your mind and your heart, but oral sex is totally different. You know, it's the total opposite of alchemy. Not good. You know, don't do it. We have a question. I've read you need to balance the three brains. So does using superior emotions spend that energy that you should conserve? So the way that we balance the three brains is learning to use them when they're appropriate. We have an intellectual job. We use the intellect consciously when we need it. And when we're in our career or with our family, wherever it may be, we use our emotions correctly, consciously when we need it. And if we use our body at our job, like a construction or whatnot, we use our body in the appropriate way, consciously when we need it. You balance the brains when, meaning you're done with those activities related to that specific brain and you give your brain a rest. You don't use it. Now, superior emotions, in a sense, is the positive use of the emotional brain because the positive use of the emotional brain is, you know, performed when we understand what is going on in our heart. Superior emotions, in a sense, are save energy. I mean, they are the expression of a superior type of force that we've cultivated and conserved. But superior emotions do not exhaust oneself. In fact, they invigorate. They're the collection of force that have been accumulated through our practices which can fuel, basically, it's it's what's the result of having used our energies in the right way. Um, but it's not an expenditure. It's almost not like you're wasting energy by feeling superior emotions. Instead, it's it's what empowers the rest of the psyche and drives it consciously. The energy we should conserve has to be conserved from the ego, the de our defects. It's the defects and desires, negative emotions, which expend the creative energies of the heart and make it dead. And think of it like, um, you know, when you're balancing your three brains or saving energy in the three brains, like, you know, you have um, a certain amount of capital in each brain, which sometimes you get more based on how well you sleep, how well you eat, what you do in the day, how you act. And every day may be a little different because your income, maybe your job changes, right? Your career, your situation. And so you're gathering or using up spiritually different um, different aspects of those three brains. I mean, um, spiritual income is like, you know, when you rest, you get recharged. And depending on how you... Uh, you know, take care of yourself, like with diet and food and impressions and comprehension of yourself is how you, you know, earn more energy, basically. You can also extend your life. Um, but we spend energy egotistically when, you know, we identify with ego. But I mean, superior emotions as of whether they spend energy, um, in a sense, that energy is using or empowering virtues, right? But it isn't a type of exhaustion. It's like a invigorating part of the psyche. But yeah, it's a delicate thing, right? I mean, it's um, pretty profound and subtle. You have to examine yourself what the, that difference is like.
We have a question. What should someone who is 19 years old do with his sexual energy who is single? Should I be looking for a wife? My birth throw card is nine and 18 and the, the ninth sphere and in the ninth sphere, I am very lustful. I'm addicted to pornography and masturbation. And because I am a Libra, it's said that those who are in Libra suffer greatly in love related to the element air. The greatest aspiration for a young person is finding their mate. And it's normal at your age to seek a partner and to find a committed relationship who will really sustain you, not only physically, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. It's normal and it's needed. However, you will prepare for your partner by changing your habits now. By learning to work with the creative energy through pranayama, through runes, sacred rites for rejuvenation, mantras, prayers. You cultivate a psychological space that is more harmonious and will be more in tune with the partner that you desire or that you long for. You can find your partner as you are now, addicted to pornography and masturbation. And that will cause problems, especially if you're looking for a partner who's elevated and who will elevate you. We attract spouse or partner based on our level of being. As someone of said, our level of being attracts our life. So I suggest that if you're addicted to pornography and masturbation, that you learn to stop. It can be done. And it's been done by many people. What happens is that it's necessary to replace bad habits with good ones. And this can be learned through meditation and many practices. We have an article on our website called How to Overcome Masturbation. We'll include it for you here, but we recommend that you study it. It will greatly help you. It goes into a lot of detail about the problems of masturbation and pornography, how to treat it, how to effectively approach it, how to end it. Really, um, that way, when you do find your spouse, you're in the right state of mind. And you have more capacity for love. You also will suffer less because you won't be making mistakes as much as, you know, would be warranted if continuing in those habits. Because really a, an initiate spouse would not like that. You know, not good, but it can be done. It can be, it can be changed. It can be accomplished. You find that balance in the scales of your kidneys, your sexual force by looking, working with transmutation exercises. We'll include a link for you at the end for that uh, article. Is there any relationship between the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, or Yahweh, human DNA, and sexual alchemy? Unfortunately, the term Jehovah, yod from Hebrew, the unpronounceable name, is often pronounced in the former method because intentionally it is referencing a demon. So Yahweh is a demon of the Black Lodge. And that was an effort of certain scholars to you know, confuse people and to invoke the wrong deity, so to speak. The Tetragrammaton, or four-letter name of God, is yod Jehovah. Tetra means four, and gram means word or letter. The tetragrammaton is the sacred name of divinity. 
Uh, in relation to human DNA, obviously our DNA, which is a helix, almost like the caduceus of Mercury, the two serpents that intertwine each other and really compose the makeup of our vital body. The DNA can also relate physically, but also they have an etheric aspect relating to our sexuality, you know? Um, in a sense, we know from Salman Vior that we have 48 chromosomes, not 46, because two of them are etheric, which we can study in uh, meditation. These 48 chromosomes relate to 48 laws of nature relating to gestation and creation of the, any physical child. So the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God, Yahavah, can relate to man and woman, alchemy. Yah means man or the masculine, the divine father. Hava can mean Eve, the divine feminine. And really, you know, when you work in sexual alchemy and the, you're working with God, if you invoke divinity in the creative act, and if you remember divinity in the act, you know, there are mantras that one performs in a marriage. E-A-O. Ignis agua origo. Or in, in Hebrew, from the Latin, water, fire, and spirit, you have yod Hey vau And the last hey spells yod Hava, the tetragrammaton. In a sense, um, we even know from basic science that, or scientists coming out now, that when you encounter stressful situations voluntarily or enter new circumstances, you activate DNA and, you know, aspects of your psyche and your body that were originally dormant. So it's like you create new parts of yourself on a very more profound level. This is something that's not been studied in the laboratory because, you know, what sane person would do this? I mean, you know, alchemy basically regenerates the body and the heart and mind. It's like it activates DNA because the sexual force is recharging the helix of our spine, the caduceus of mercury, you know? When say that science would acknowledge this fact, but you don't find any scientific studies explaining or having studied a control group of people who practice alchemy in a, you know, monogamous relationship. But yeah, I mean, it is, there is the potential there. We have a question. In the perfect matrimony, someone very mentions that Maithuna should occur at dawn. Is this to be taken literally? You know, I'm wondering um, if you could provide the actual quote because, you know, honestly, like, it's good to practice at night, especially if you're working to create the solar bodies. But practicing in the daytime is good for eliminating defects. I believe he talks about this in the perfect, um, sorry, in the mystery of the golden flower. Now with uh, Mythuna at dawn, you can practice in the pre-sunlight hours in the hour of Lucifer Venus, especially at 4 a.m. can be very effective because that's a very powerful time of day or energy you know, in which the creative forces are very active. You know, men sometimes wake up maybe in the morning at that hour, you know, those who have a lot of virility, maybe with a, you know, erection, you know, there's vulgar terms for that. But basically, it's a virile time in which the forces of Venus or love are very powerful. And if the couple is up for it, you're welcome to practice that at that time, you know, with a lot of force. 
oh, it could be very effective and powerful. But yeah, I mean, the only requisite really for alchemy is if you want to create solar bodies, no sunlight. If you want to work on ego, especially only, you can do so during the daytime or when the sun is out. This is because, as someone here mentions, the solar light is what deters the development of the solar vehicles being generated. Because then the same way that a chick in an egg cannot grow but in darkness, the same way with the solar bodies. So there's that alchemical stipulation there. We have a question. Can you have an overaccumulation of the sexual heart energy? Do you need to discharge the energy and how if you're single? In terms of overaccumulation, as if having too much energy or too much sexual energy, I think it depends. It really depends on the, the person. I mean, um, I think for most, some people, um, those who have a very strong sex drive, it's an overaccumulation if it's not harnessed consciously and transformed. So in a sense, the sexual glands or the sexual organs are like a chalice, you know, for men, they accumulate semen within the testicles and, you know, women have a different cycle where, you know, the ovum is uh, cycling, cycling through um, or being generated and cycling through the, um, the ovaries or the uterus um, eventually. Um, that energy over accumulates if we're not actively transmuting it daily. Uh, in terms of the heart, you know, we can have a lot of energy in our emotional center, but, you know, it's discharged if you use your uh, that energy with egotism or lust. Now, it's harnessed and capitalized for the spirit when we learn to control it consciously. So yeah, I mean, with time, like if you're saving energy and accumulating force, eventually it's going to build up, but we have to direct it in some endeavor. You can't just save energy in the same way that you can't just, you know, fill up your car, the tank full of gas, but then don't drive it. You have to drive it somewhere, you know, gas that just stays in one area and doesn't, isn't used in a tank after three months, it degrades in the same way, psychologically too. You have to learn to save the energy and then direct it with the soul. And if you're single, if you got a lot of emotional energy or sexual energy, do a lot of runes, do a lot of sacred rites of rejuvenation, do a lot of transmutation exercises. You know, if you got that power in you and you got to direct it somewhere, use a lot of practices. Harness it daily. And that way you become very defined and determined in your work. We have a question. When in a new romantic relationship with a partner who is not familiar with chaste sex, what is a way to practice keeping the act pure? I mean, first off, it's important to communicate. It's important to talk with your partner, you know, be very open about what you're doing. It's um, not necessary that your spouse be Gnostic. There are many people in this movement who practice Gnosis, but whose partners are in a different religion. And what makes the relationship work is communication and love. So it's important to be very clear with people, you know, especially entering a romantic relationship that as difficult as it may be, you know, this is chase sexuality is what you practice and to explain it patiently with a lot of love because it's not easy to 
practice, but it also, you know, for people who are not educated, it can be very overwhelming and maybe even offending too, provoking. You know, this is why in the Bible, the stone of Peter, the path of Peter is the stone of controversy. And yet it is the same that is the chief cornerstone of our temple. And it is not marvelous in our eyes. You practice to keep the act pure, you know, really by meditating on your own lust. That's the only way. You have to meditate on your lust. Without comprehending yourself, it's impossible to approach the sexual act with purity. But obviously there's going to be degrees because it's not expected that we're going to be saints in the beginning, you know? It's not going to happen. We may imagine like some people think, oh, I'm going to enter the perfect matrimony or I'm going to be in a relationship and I'm going to be a total saint. Nope. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of lust in our minds. So you got to examine that and patiently, you know, reflect, reflect on your mind daily, meditate so that you can return to the act. If you are in a committed relationship, married, um, so that you can refine the sacrament of Rome. We have a question. Can single people awaken in the astral plane, hod, and ask guidance by the beings there for everyday life? Um, Yeah, easily. You know, you're saving your energies, you're meditating, you're working on your defects, you're trying to give to your community, sacrificing for humanity in some degree, according to your talents and dispositions, then yeah, you can awaken internally, even without a physical Gnostic group. I know many people who have been meditating for years, you know, being alone in some far off place, physically remote from the world, maybe even living in a log cabin, kind of like Walden, what is it, um, Henry David Thoreau, and then having all these experiences, you know, even though they're single and, you know, working on themselves. So it's, it's very possible. I mean, what matters is your determination and your work. Question. Is there any benefit to asking for the elimination of an ego, though you have not comprehended it? You can ask, but it won't mean that there will be elimination. You know, in a sense, your divine mother knows more profoundly what can be eliminated and what can't. Full comprehension is fundamental. You know, we can extract power from an ego, make it weak direct sexual energy at it to, you know, disempower and slowly disintegrate it because, you know, it's a process. It takes a long time, especially to eliminate very fat egos. But, you know, obviously, depending on your comprehension, you can ask for annihilation, you know, pray for it. And your divine mother knows best. She won't eliminate an ego that has not been fully comprehended because what happens is that with annihilation, the consciousness is extracted little by little with comprehension. And eventually when that comprehension is total and integral, the ego is uh, really stripped of its essence and the soul is pure, uh, taken from it. She sends the ego down into the infernal worlds to eliminate it, but only when the soul is fully liberated from it. Now, if she were to send the ego down into hell with our consciousness trapped in it, there'd be a problem. But obviously she is the intelligence of God, Bina in Kabbalah. And she only eliminates what we've understood precisely because of this. So, yeah. So, but you can, you can ask, I mean, it's good to ask, 
but you'll know the results through time and uh, repeated circumstances where the ego should emerge through recurrence. We have a question. Can physical injury prevent you from being able to transmute? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, some people have, uh, I mean, there's the study of, a. Uh, I mean, you know, from the Bible, there's eunuchs, right? Those who have been castrated. There's a saying in um, the Old Testament, I believe. I don't remember what scripture, what, what book particularly, but he who is wounded in the stones or has his privy member cut off shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. You know, it might be from one of the first five books of Moses. So that statement is basically saying that if, you know, your sexual organs are damaged, then the hermetic alchemical glass can't transmute. But even if that's the case, such as through vasectomy, intentional, you know, surgeries like vasectomy or hysterectomy, other conditions, it's still possible to advance in this work. Obviously, there will be an impediment in the flow and perfect harmony of that energy, but one can still accomplish a lot through meditation and prayer and work. But yeah, I mean, there's an article on Glorian, especially that talks about this. You know, can one still practice whether having vasectomy, hysterectomy, and and whatnot? You know, there's a couple uh, Q and A answers from the old forum on Glorian Publishing, kind of conglomerated to answer that. But yeah, I mean, it could it could prevent or it could hinder to a degree, but it's not the end of the world. I mean, obviously, one can work still if you have consciousness. We have a question. Is there a way one can tell if they have successfully transmuted their sexual energy versus repression? Yes. Examine your mind and heart. Is your concentration more serene, unwavering, sustained? Do you have greater clarity of intuition or understanding? Are you able to perceive more in dreams? Can you comprehend when a defect or ego is about to arise in you and not act on it, not repress it, not push it away, but you use the, the soul to investigate, to discriminate. So there's a lot of things you can look for. I mean, um, we gave a lecture on our website called Pranayama and Sexual Transmutation, where at the end we gave an excerpt from Swami Shivananda's book, Kundalini Yoga. It might've been one of his other books, but uh, he talks about the benefits of pranayama and how you know that you transmuted the sexual energy because you have all these benefits, you know, like good spiritual benefits. You know, some of that I mentioned. I recommend you study that lecture. You know, there's an explanation there. But repression of sexuality is very different. Suppression or repression of sexuality, repressing lust, pushing it aside, creates a lot more problems because... What happens is that even if you think you're being chased by maybe avoiding sexual situations or, you know, meeting other people or the opposite sex or whatnot, I mean, a person can think that they're being chased. It's just that one's not in situations where the lust is going to come out. And what will happen eventually is that that lust will still, you know, get very heavy, you know, will want to act. And it's going to bite you in ways that, you know, you will regret, you know, the lust will appear and emerge in different ways. Sometimes it'll compensate for things that it can't get physically. You know, I believe Nietzsche described this in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, where, you know, out of the eyes of these celibates who are practicing supposedly chastity, who are repressing sex, but not actually looking at their lust, you know, will look at, you know, look for lust through their gaze 
and will seek to feed and compensate in other ways. And in that way, the, you know, the lust will, you know, begs for a piece of spirit when denied a piece of meat. That's his, his literal statement, you know, so it looks for food in other ways and it's very subtle, but the only way to get rid of it is to confront it openly and not hide or run away from the circumstances are being put to us in so that we can face ourselves. We have a question. If someone does not feel sexual arousal, how can they recognize their sexual energy? So some people may have more or less sexual energy, and that's normal. I mean, people have different temperaments. You know, someone Vera mentions you have people who are hot, some people who are warm, and some who are cold. And this often can relate, uh, you know, impact a marriage, especially, you know. Some couples are very hot. You know, they practice alchemy, you know, may have a lot of sexual drive to engage with their partner every day, maybe once, you know, once a day at most, obviously, with alchemy. Some people maybe once a week, some people twice a month, once a month. Some people are hot, some people are warm, some people are cold. Just because a person has a cold temperament doesn't mean that they don't have sexual energy. It just means it's more subdued, you know. And that a person with a cold temperament could recognize their sexuality by working with pranayama and observing and watching for lust. Because people who may be cold still may have lust, maybe not to a pronounced degree, but they still have the impulse and instinct to desire there. It just may seem it's it just might be more hidden for them. But if you're meditating and observing yourself, you'll clearly see it if that's your temperament. Obviously, people who have hot temperaments may you know, see it very clearly in themselves because they're constantly fixated on sex. You know, different psychologies or, you know, temperaments to use someone Vera's term. Okay. Um, we'll take one more question. How is it possible that a woman can experience at dawn an ovary is a tiny pink light, ascend the spine and land in the heart? What does this mean in alchemical terms? Can it happen more than once and without knowing? Some people who may practice transmutation or pranayama may see visualizations. You know, some exercises require that you meditate and visualize the energies flowing from the base of the spine or sexual organs to the mind and then to the heart. Now, at a basic level, you know, seeing an ovary like a pink light going up the spine and going to the heart. I mean, it could be something that your being is teaching you to show you the nature of transmutation. You know, obviously it's not alchemy in the sense that unless you're married, you know, a marriage is really strictly the form of alchemical practice that we're talking about, the perfect matrimony. But a single people can still transmute. And, you know, obviously that could be a symbol in your imagination that is showing about the nature of how the sexual force can empower, enlighten the mind and heal the heart. Um, yeah, I mean, those types of visualizations in meditation and pranayama can happen all the time, you know, but I would say that it wouldn't happen without knowing it, especially in the beginning, if you're not trained. I mean, single people can take years to learn how to transmute the sexual energy and get the body to make the energies flow inward and upward. 
naturally, you know, by instinct, you know, because unfortunately, a lot of us have had bad habits. The energy is used to flowing outward. But through an alchemy, through many years of the perfect matrimony, one can eventually transmute the sexual energy, you know, without effort, you know, because the energy is always flowing inward and upward. I know this one instructor, I know, who has been practicing alchemy for like 30 years, basically was telling me, like, you know, this is something that I do automatically, even while walking, because I've done this for a long time. So that's when it can happen, you know. Okay, so we're going to conclude. I appreciate the turnout. Thank you for the questions. Uh, feel free to write to us if you have any other uh, questions too. Um, but I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagognosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.